Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jacob Haar, the co-founder and managing partner of Community Investment Management. CIM is an institutional impact investment manager that provides debt capital to lenders who are doing really innovative work in underserved communities. The community investment management capital both helps these organizations scale up their lending practices to serve more customers and helps to bring these responsible and transparent financial solutions for the underserved into the mainstream. Jacob first got started working at this intersection of social impact and small business lending while he was in Azerbaijan working for Save the Children's microfinance institution. After leaving Save the Children, Jacob founded and managed Minlum Asset Management, a microfinance fund that provided debt investment to micro, small, and medium enterprise lenders in emerging markets. Let's jump into the conversation. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alex. Tell me about community investment management. So community investment management is an institutional impact investment manager. We focus on funding responsible innovation and lending to underserved communities, which covers small and medium businesses, students, low-income households, and many underserved parts, both in the United States as well as in emerging markets. Many of these people are not enjoying access to financial services that create economic stability for themselves. And we are trying to look at how to potentially expand the options to both include them, but also provide products that solve real pain points to allow them to increase their financial health overall. You mentioned it a little bit at the end, but what's the challenge that you're trying to solve at CIM? The main challenge is that lending is broken for many people. And in fact, lending often, I mean, if you really just want to distill it down to its core, lending is about power, right? And Mm -hmm. often lending essentially exacerbates inequities that we've had that have gotten up to this point in time. And it's one of the challenges about capitalism broadly, right? Is that people with capital are often the ones that are in the best position to continue to benefit from capital and, and lending can be leverage for the folks who have been more fortunate. But lending also has the capacity to transform what people can do based on their capabilities and not necessarily based on just the opportunities that they've been dealt. And so if you believe, like I do, that capabilities are equally distributed, but opportunities certainly are not, then lending actually can be a way to try to level the playing field a little bit more and solve and address some of the power dynamics. So for example, You talk about payments. Uh, Payments is power. Like people who have less power get paid later. And so whether you're talking about small businesses waiting to get paid when they provide goods and services to larger suppliers with power, or if you're talking about uh, low-income communities who are waiting to get paid, from example, their employers. (laughs) they're, They're essentially making loans to their employers and their employers pay them for their work after the fact on some sort of schedule. So lending can really get involved in trying to address some of those structural inequities and potentially allow people to achieve things that uh, we think they deserve, but ultimately the system is not yet recognizing as being part of what they can be offered. Can you give an example of a lender that you've invested in and how they're using technology to 
to scale lending into these underserved communities? We recently made an investment in a company called Salary Finance. And Salary Finance is a company that's been pretty successful in the United Kingdom. But what they're doing is pretty new in the United States, which is they integrate with employers to allow low-income employees to borrow from Salary Finance. But because it, it essentially works as a payroll deduction, it reduces the risk that those employees will not pay back. And so therefore, they're able to lower the costs significantly from what they would be charged from a market rate perspective. So the innovation is that technology allows you to integrate with employers, offer HR departments the ability to give their employees a benefit, an employee benefit, to access much more affordable loans so that they don't need to go to payday lenders and fall into debt traps. That's an example of a company that we're working with when we think about low-income households and how to provide responsible alternatives to payday lending. Uh, on the small business side, we're doing a lot there as well. So for example, we closed an investment with a company called Founders First Capital Partners that recently just raised an A round that Cerdna and Rockefeller Foundations led. And in that case, they're actually going to low-income, women-owned, and minority-owned small businesses where they're providing capital uh, with a revenue-based financing model to invest in the potential of those small businesses to grow as an alternative to venture capital, which is in short supply. And so especially strong with Black-owned small businesses, Black entrepreneurs who have not gotten access to capital, they're offering significant revenue-based financing sources so that those businesses can grow and scale without necessarily having both access to credit as well as availability of venture capital. So in both cases, you're providing debt to founders first and to salary finance so that they can increase their capacity? That's right. Fundamentally, our mission is about scaling and demonstrating innovation lending. So when you look at the landscape out there, you need really three things for these companies to be successful. You need a really driven entrepreneurial team that is trying, that has, a, has some sort of a mousetrap or some sort of a compelling business model on how they reach, understand, de-risk, and lower the cost of serving the underserved. You also need venture capital to invest and support those companies in trying to grow, invest in acquiring customers, prove out the model. But to the extent that the innovation that they're working on relates to lending, you also need debt capital to provide the capital to lend out to your underserved communities. And so what CIM does is we do private credit investing alongside the venture backers in partnership with that entrepreneurial team to try to demonstrate and scale various different approaches to solving these pain points in, in working with the underserved. And our capital generally can come in relatively early but also is structured in a way where in the event that the innovation doesn't happen, isn't successful long-term, we are a debt investor and still can be repaid. So it's, it's pretty heavy on, on the downside risk protection and thinking about partnerships where we're allowed, we're giving folks an opportunity to scale and demonstrate. But in the case on the downside that we need to uh, recognize that some of these things will not work out, then we also need to be able to recover our capital as there's not much margin for error as a credit investor. We, we've talked on the show about how important small business is to the GDP, to job growth and creation. But, you know, when you're talking about some of these small service businesses, what they need in terms of debt is a pretty 
a pretty small check size in a lot of cases. So you're, you're working with institutional investors who are writing huge checks, I imagine, need to be writing huge checks in order to make it worth their time. So you're using technology to kind of bridge that chasm between like institutional investing and, and small business lending. There's, in the, the small business landscape in the United States, there's a, there's a few different key players, right? So for example, the community development financial institutions do a, yeah. a great job at providing high impact capital to underserved communities. And there are some for-profit CDFIs, um, but most of them tend to be nonprofit, regionally focused CDFIs. And most of that capital is coming, to your point, from either foundations or bank, Community Reinvestment Act dollars, et cetera, or, or some impact investors as well. And so they do great work, but they're a little bit more on the nonprofit side of things. And I would say scale is really one of the challenges there. What technology is trying to bridge the gulf of is many of the businesses that do not have access to bank capital because bank capital is generally underwritten from a collateral-based understanding, whereas the current market environment that we live in today, the small business landscape does not have as many capital-intensive manufacturing businesses, for example, or businesses that own real estate where they're able to access as much of that. So there's many great quality businesses that have good revenue, are profitable, have been around, but don't have good access to affordable capital, partly because the loan sizes are small and they're in services sectors, right? And that's acutely the case when it comes to women-owned businesses and businesses that are owned by people of color. They're more likely to be smaller. They're more likely to not have collateral because they're in the services space. So for example, 95% of businesses that are owned by women are services businesses, where generically, if you look at commercial, the commercial sector, it's only 76% are services businesses. So as you think about specific pain points for underserved and underrepresented businesses, you have to get innovative with the model, similar to what we've seen in global microfinance, where it's about understanding businesses really well, understanding the cash flow of those businesses and lending against that. And ultimately being able to get as much information as you can, de-risk as best you can, and lower the cost of making smaller loans. And if you're able to leverage technology to do that in various different ways, then you can offer more affordable products to small businesses and drive the cost down over time. And I think that's a big part of this. It's about looking at, for example, the way that folks who are underserved they are the folks for whom the, the market is most broken and where there's the greatest need for improvement, disruption, innovation. And so that's where often innovation is focused. It's focused on where can I make the biggest difference with this change that I'm introducing into the model. And so I think there's a natural alignment between the goals of impact investors as well as where technology innovation is occurring. And impact investors need to get involved to essentially steer all of that towards the world that we want to live in. Otherwise, you know, we can see some technology innovation, but it doesn't necessarily benefit those who are underserved. By, by investing in that innovation and steering that in a responsible borrower-centric direction, we really can potentially expand and improve on the options that folks are given, which today are lowest common denominator and do not invest actually in their real potential, but rather are just investing with rates that reflect how poorly they're served.
it's a really interesting intersection of of entrepreneurship and institutional investing and financial inclusion. How'd you get into this work? What led you to found community investment management? I started out in financial services because I was working and living in emerging markets. And after graduate school, started working for Save the Children in Azerbaijan and started working on their economic opportunities program, which was doing micro-lending to refugees following the war. This is in the early 2000s. And was really compelled by how a for-profit, sustainable model would enable folks who were very much left out of the financial system to participate and saw that, in fact, that they could invest in their own businesses, pay back our microfinance loans, and have very successful growing microenterprises. Uh, and so that led my co-founder, Michael Hokinson, and I to start Minlaw Asset Management, which was a microfinance and SME lender focused on local currency in 2005. We started that. And so we invested in over 50 different microfinance and specialty finance companies in 35 emerging and frontier markets. And community investment management grew out of that work, where essentially it was thinking about what do we need to do to create microfinance 2.0 or financial inclusion 2.0? I think I'm a real believer in the power of microfinance, but also saw somewhat the limitations of this brick and mortar model where the operating expenses were very high and those operating expenses got passed on to microenterprises. And for SMEs, you have a missing middle because the marginal cost of accessing capital and growing your business is such that they could not bear to have the same sort of interest rates that say a microenterprise could bear uh, because they were at such a subscaled level. And technology and a lot of the innovation we were seeing in that space uh, we thought was really compelling. And so we started community investment management focused on the United States and focused on small businesses and how technology could allow small businesses that were poorly served in the United States to access capital. And we've funded over 1.2 billion to small businesses here in the United States over the last six years and just recently expanded back to emerging markets, which is a lot of the, the work that we've done. We've opened an office recently in Berlin and Singapore and are, are growing in Latin America as well as Asia uh, in terms of also thinking about how fintech can allow SMEs and other low-income households and students, et cetera, to access responsible capital. But you're right, it is the nexus of entrepreneurship, technology, impact investing. But I think guiding all of that is the sense that you know, folks who, for whom the system is broken, if, with enough persistence, and dedication and ingenuity, these are solvable problems. And it, there, there's not a single thing that's gonna solve all of it, but by scaling and demonstrating different solutions, we think that we can find some better ways to, to serve folks and, and really move the ball forward in terms of financial inclusion, but, but even more important than just inclusion, improving the options for folks so that they can have a much better financial health outcome. You talked about using technology to solve this problem, and a, a lot of the field looks at impact investing as a way to kind of circumvent the public sector when they don't think they're doing a good enough job serving a particular population. But it, at CIM, you've really leaned into the need for better regulation around small business lending. What's the role of public policy in the financial inclusion work that you're doing? Well, I think policy is fundamental to 
the theory of change that we have at CIM and, and generally as you think about it. I mean, part of it is relating to innovation, right? So just taking a step back, innovation is recognizing that the current system can be improved upon and we need to create room for new models. At the same time, we also need to make sure that the guardrails keep pace with the innovation. The last thing we want are new and innovative ways to rip people off. And so just part and parcel of doing things that are innovative has to be getting regulation and policy to, to keep pace. And so, you know, and part of this is, is, say, for example, focused in the United States, where small business lending is highly unregulated. And, and folks don't always understand that, for example, when you're a consumer lender, uh, you have to disclose what's called the Schumer box, which tells you, you know, this is what you're borrowing, this is what your APR is, this is how all the fees add up in that, and those various terms. Well, small business lending, there is not that requirement because the government views it as a private contract between two commercial entities. But a small business loan being taken from a lender that was designed to provide capital to businesses and an individual that may only have a couple of employees, it's not a fair fight. It's not like the small business has a full-time CFO and can necessarily understand all of the idiosyncrasies and uh, tricks that that lender might be using to obfuscate the true cost. And so one of the things we've been advocating for and had some decent success on the last five years as part of the Responsible Business Lending Coalition is pushing for the Truth in Lending Act and, and requirements to cover small businesses as well as consumers. And we've gotten a law passed in California. We've got a law just recently passed in New York. And up in the docket for this new Congress is going to be Nidia Velasquez's Truth in Lending Act uh, bill, which we're strongly behind. And I think it's important to engage with policymakers to understand the scope of the problem, why we need to make room for things, but also where we need to do a good job at, at keeping pace with that. And when I think about our theory of change, yes, there's the money you're specifically getting into the hands. So I mentioned 1.2 billion we've gotten into the hands of small businesses. But there's also the way that you are building an industry, which is around thinking about new and innovative approaches that you're trying to scale and demonstrate, irrespective of just your capital and just thinking broadly about really new potential approaches. But the, the most sort of structural enabling environment level of change is about creating rules that everyone has to abide by where, in fact, we are focused on requiring practices to give customers and borrowers knowledge, to have things like responsible underwriting, fair collection practices, all of the things that you, we sometimes take for granted, but people who are underserved often are not given the same benefit of, of equal treatment. And one of the things you've been at the forefront of, I believe you, you helped to co-found, was the Small Business Borrower's Bill of Rights. Can you tell me a little bit about, about that? Sure. So the Small Business Borrower Bill of Rights is something that was authored by the Responsible Business Lending Coalition. And we started it in 2015. And essentially, it goes through six fundamental rights that we believe that businesses should have when they take a loan. That's the right to get transparent information, the right to responsible underwriting, the right to fair collection practices, the right to have their information reported to credit bureaus, and other such rights. And so it's going to ultimately codifying behavior. And we've done this in a number of other areas. In microfinance back in the day, we did this with the client protection principles. And we've done it now with impact investing. 
Uh, we've done it in a number of different areas. And I think it's really important to codify what exactly impact means so that we can verify that the investments we're making comply with those standards and, and that potential framework. And what's great about the Small Business Borrow Bill of Rights is it's not only a set of principles that, that industry actors and nonprofits like Aspen Institute and also we've seen some CDFIs like uh, Opportunity Fund, et cetera, be a part of. It also is now a blueprint for policy, and as I mentioned, in California, New York, and hopefully in the national level. And, you know, I do think that, look, as investors, we could just keep our heads down and only put our money into certain investments and stay quiet. But I think we have a responsibility to also step up and play an outsized role in calling out good and bad practices. Delineating those things is really important. Being specific and then working with policymakers to limit bad action. I think with with the impact investing, you're alluding to the the IFC's operating principles for impact management, right? Which is built around transparency in the impact investing space, and the Small Business Borrowers Bill of Rights is around transparency in the the small business lending space. What's been the reaction from your institutional investors to this type of opting into this type of of transparency and accountability? Or do they view it as an asset? Do they think of it as a, a liability? I mean, how is that? How have these conversations gone with your investors? My experience is that these various different principles and, and efforts, initiatives, frameworks, et cetera, are, are less for investors and more for formalizing and standardizing these policies and procedures so that we as an industry agree on you know, what does impact mean? What, do, what, what, what does responsible and transparent lending mean, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to leave that to be so subjective that it's always in the eye of the beholder. And it's important, I think, to, to really crowdsource that information and get folks to be specific in, in negotiating over the language and the principles, et cetera. You know, I definitely think that as an institutional impact investment manager, we need to have various frameworks and standardized policies and procedures, whether that comes to the compliance policies, code of ethics that any investment manager, whether you're impact or not, would have, or whether it comes to the application of the term impact. And we're seeing this now, for example, in Europe being codified into law, where now in in Europe, we're starting to see requirements kicking in as of March 31st, where funds that refer to themselves as impact funds are going to have to have different types of requirements. And so, you know, I think, I think that the IFC's operating principles for impact management was a great effort. We were one of the founding signatories to be a part of that. But whether it's codifying what impact means in terms of integrating within your, your processes, your practices, et cetera, what is responsible and transparent lending and specifically in fintech mean, which we've been a part of an initiative there with the guidelines for responsible investing in digital financial services, or what, for example, responsible and transparent lending to small businesses means in the United States with the Small Business Borrow Bill of Rights. These are all important frameworks that I think show rigorous thinking and ultimately a long-term view on a theory of change and how one executes on that theory of change. And I think that's more important than necessarily the specifics of a particular set of principles to investors, from my experience. 
Have you had any issues with your investors around fiduciary duty? I know at least under the previous administration, there was pretty strong opposition to fiduciaries getting anywhere near investment products labeled as impact. Over 50% of our investors are institutional, and so certainly Mm -hmm. are, are subject to those fiduciary duty requirements. We, however, are a market rate fund. And so we don't we don't have as much of an issue about that because you know we think we can go to the mat with any non-impact manager that does private credit investing in these types of assets. And for us, impact is actually a competitive advantage. We are, I believe, outperforming because of impact, not despite impact. And so that has not been something that, that we've dealt with. And we generally are dealing with the investment offices, for example, at a foundation instead of the program office at a foundation. Our strategy is supported by allocations that come more from mission-related investing than program-related investing, just in terms of the Mm -hmm. split of of that. And I do really believe in the importance of a spectrum between philanthropy and commercial investment. But where we sit is on scaling and demonstrating commercial models that we think can tackle the size and scope of the challenges that are facing the underserved. So you're trying to de-risk this type of investment so that more institutional players will move into this space and hopefully these markets will no longer be underserved. Yeah, I mean, I think we will always have underserved because underserved relates to power. And there will always be people that are in a more powerful position than others. But I think to the extent that capital markets can help instead of hurt, that's something that I feel very passionate about. I know my my co-founder and my colleagues feel really passionate about. Um, and we see it. I mean, we see it in action. We see how innovation is really bringing the costs down for businesses, is providing them with products that are better suited for their needs and ultimately improving their financial health. But that doesn't mean that's not a great long-term business model. And so, uh, you know, for us, the opportunity is also the impact. It's, it's more about how do you serve that customer and whether or not you are looking to long-term offer a product that's really compelling to that underserved customer as opposed to trying to extract as much wealth as possible in the short term from that customer. But that's less about impact versus non-impact uh, as it is about long-term versus short-term looking at, at how one runs a business. How do you think about impact measurement? What do, you, what do your investors look for with regards to impact measurement and management? A lot of impact measurement and management for us is the framework through which we evaluate different opportunities. Um, but then on an ongoing basis, there is looking at how the dollars are deployed, right? So that's the most on the ground layer of, of impact in our theory of change. Um, one of the great things about doing fintech is that you have tons of data. And that data is great for evaluating risk, et cetera, but it's also great in understanding who it is that we are serving. And so, for example, we have, from the very beginning, our CTO built an investor portal that had fully transparent data on many of the small businesses that we were serving. So folks could essentially go into a portal and look in real time at not just who were the lenders that we were financing, but who were the underlying customers that you could see on your block, on your street, you know, that might fit a certain geographic focus, might fit a focus on, for example, working on things like racial equity, 
might work on gender lens investing and thinking about empowering women-owned businesses who are so underserved by traditional markets. And other things, people working in the creative economy. We have about a quarter of the businesses that we serve are actually smaller businesses in the creative economy that are, that are very underserved. So part of it is, is providing data. I think that is one of the things that impact investing really has an opportunity to grow uh, towards here in the next couple of decades is as we have the digital transformation of society and commerce, we should be able to provide much greater transparency and granularity of information to investors so that they can understand where their money is going. I mean, ultimately, a lot of impact investing is first just understanding what's happening. I mean, people invest in a mutual fund, just providing visibility in what are the investments of that mutual fund is very much a transformative first step so that we can understand actually where our money sits. And it's the first step to then taking ownership of the impact your money is having. Uh, and so I think working on that awareness in the, in the form of reporting is essential. But we take a holistic view around what our impact is. Our impact is, yes, about getting money to certain folks, but it's also about the scale and demonstration of models. It's also about the policy change. And so I don't think we want you want to get too caught up in just metrics. We have to have the holistic view into additionality and into really the change that we're driving. And I, I look at that picture, and sometimes I'm as excited about the change we're making on the policy side as I am about specifically, you know, the 70,000 borrowers who have gotten capital from us. And so I think that there's a real split there in terms of how we have to think about it. What under the current Biden administration do you predict will occur regarding the underserved in terms of small business banking and lending? I think it's a very unique moment for small businesses that have the support across party lines to advance some of the protections and improvements in the system. So for example, we talked a little bit about the Small Business Lending Disclosure and Broker Regulation Act, which was introduced over the summer by Nidia Velasquez, a representative from Queens, which would protect small businesses from predatory loans and create national transparency standards for lenders. And there's a real window of opportunity with bipartisan support to move that forward. Senator Menendez from New Jersey had mentioned recently that he was going to sponsor that in the Senate. And so I think there's there's real potential to move that forward. But the other thing I would mention is that during COVID, and now as we look coming out of COVID, hopefully, we've got a window where PPP needed distribution to smaller businesses that were not well served by banks. And a lot of fintechs actually stepped up to provide the access to the smaller businesses, um, and particularly the businesses owned by people of color or businesses owned by women or businesses in low-income neighborhoods. A lot of the fintechs were the ones actually providing access. And the Small Business Administration went a little bit outside of their comfort zone out of necessity during, during the height of, of COVID. And we have a new Small Business Administration administrator, Isabel Guzman, who was from California and has been incredible here in California, really understands fintech not just as the potential predatory role that some fintechs are playing, which is real, but also so many of the fintechs that are responsible and that are reaching the underserved. And so I think this is a special moment to see bipartisan collaboration, but even just the support for a lot of these nascent programs and needs where fintech can play a central role in improving on how we're reaching underserved small businesses. And, and I think that's just broadly what I would hit on here is that 
the digital transformation of society and commerce, it's been happening for a while. It's accelerated. Many of these themes that we've been looking at have accelerated and the barriers to adoption have fallen away over the past year during COVID. And I don't think we're going backwards. Like I think that at the end of the day, financial services, both in the United States as well as, as all over the world and in emerging markets particularly, are going to be increasingly digital. And so as an impact investment community, we need to rally behind the models that we delineate as being the responsible models and provide capital and direction to building out a more equitable financial ecosystem. And fintech is going to be the way that we're reaching customers, understanding them, de-risking and serving them in, in transformatively better ways than we have been doing earlier. And so I think it's a really exciting time, both because of the Biden administration, as well as just this is what the world needs coming out of COVID. And if you know the world was incredibly broken in terms of access to responsible loans before COVID and coming out of COVID, the inequities that have grown and the, and the K-shaped economy that is continuing to, to be perpetuated here, we have to really step up and use credit and use innovation to do a better job at, at working with the underserved. That would certainly be a silver lining in the, the past year or so. So in a, in a hopeful note to end on. So Jacob, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Alex, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Jacob Haar of Community Investment Management. As always on our website at socapglobal.com, you can find additional information about the innovative work that CIM is doing in the financial inclusion space. I want to give a quick thank you to our producer, Dave Lashansky, who you can find more on at davidbenjaminsound.com. Over the next few weeks, we have some exciting guests in the pipeline, including Shalini Rao from Generation Investment Management, Greg Nietzschean from Kenny Arth, and Kristen Hull from Nia Impact Capital. So stay tuned, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.